Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. There is a direct correlation there between the behavior and the result. The question that I bring to the table is how does your work week as it goes directly affect that? Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Today, I'm interviewing Jessica Channel Eiler. Jessica is the Director of Fundraising Intelligence Analytics and Reporting at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. For 20 years, she has navigated the complex world of fundraising in higher education institutions, gaining invaluable insights and refining her strategies. A firm believer in the power of data-driven decision-making, Jessica has effectively used her knowledge of analytics and fundraising intelligence to forge stronger connections between fundraisers and donors. Her ability to balance the science of data with the art of building relationships makes her a standout in the field. In this episode, Jessica and I discuss understanding the relationship between fundraising activities and donor behavior. We talk a lot in our sector about donor behavior as if it falls out of the sky, but in many ways, donor behavior is the response to fundraiser behavior. Fundraiser behavior is the leading indicator and donor behavior is the lagging indicator. So I wanted to know what happens when we start looking at the correlation more closely. What behaviors make the biggest impact and what should we be prioritizing? And then what happens when we start to track what we do as fundraisers instead of just the end result and the money that comes into our organization. This episode is full of helpful takeaways and I can't wait to dive in. So let's go meet Jessica. Hello, everyone. Welcome. I am so excited to be here today with Jessica Channel Eiler. Jessica, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thanks, Mallory. It's such fun to be able to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you today. I feel like you understand a world and a type of fundraising activity that is so, so different than my original orientation to this practice. And I wish I had someone like you on my team when I was fundraising. But let's just start with everyone getting to know you a little bit, what brought you into this sector and into the work that you do, and what do you focus on today? And then we'll dive in. Okay. I've been in fundraising for about 20 years, all higher education, and all but one of my positions have been in R1 schools. So I've been very privileged in that way. I've been given amazing opportunities. I started as a secretary for five development officers, worked my way up into advancement services and into prospect development and data. At the same time, I sort of flipped back and forth between the two. And of course, those are married. So I've been at that and trying to be resourceful and understand the the field as it's grown over 20 years and take parts and pieces of that into our own programming as as well. So it's been a fun ride. There are a lot of folks who are listening to this who might not even know, I think I didn't know when I first started fundraising, like what advancement 
meant because there's such a difference in how fundraising happens in those small nonprofits versus these larger institutions. So could you describe a little bit about like, what is an advancement office? What do advancement professionals do? That might give some additional orientation as we talk about the details of your work. Sure. Well, it's called many things, actually. Some places call it development. Some places call it philanthropy. Some places actually call it advancement. But the idea in its origins is just the advancement of the institution. So that that is the sort of core of it. And as the state funding and as larger funding resources have diminished, our role as fundraisers has become forefront for higher education. And that's happened probably over the past 30 years. Some states more recently than others. <laughs> so that's sort of it. Um, you know, we are the reason scholarships get funded. We are the reason new positions get endowed. Basically, we both match interests of individuals and corporations, foundations to projects on campus and make those grow. It really becomes a symbiotic relationship with the economy and our donor-based alumni as well. Can you tell us, like, what are all the different positions inside an advancement office or development office or fundraising office? So I think it's good for folks to know, like, that word can sort of be used interchangeably, but usually it's used when there's an entire department of people supporting the fundraising activity. So inside small organizations, when it's a development director and maybe an event coordinator or something like that, you you don't see that terminology. (laughs) Yeah. Being used in the same way. So what are usually the positions that make up an advancement office? Depending on the size of the institution, it can be from one single person doing everything like just like a, a nonprofit or You can have massive, massive shops. You know, your larger R1 schools have just hundreds of people on payroll. In general, though, you usually have an advancement services AVP or manager director. You have a frontline director as AVP usually or or something to that effect. And then you have your marketing. You have prospect development if you're lucky. (laughs) You have analytics. You have reporting and you have your technical IT people. That's usually sort of your advancement services bundle. And then you have the front line, which of course has uh, representatives for each unit that you're representing. It's so interesting because when so many of the positions that you just listed really remind us how important the data and the behavioral tracking is around fundraising. And then you see like the Chronicle of Philanthropy had some article like use data to raise more basically. (laughs) And there's just like this kind of massive disconnect sometimes when you think about the amount and types of data that an advancement shop is using versus like some of the conversations that are happening in these small nonprofits around like starting to collect any type of data in the first place. And the thing I really wanted to talk with you about today in particular is I feel like especially for those small to mid-sized nonprofits, the quote unquote data that they start tracking, which of course makes sense because most of them are starting with a front facing donation collection system, right? That's their first technology is how do we collect donations? How do we collect payments? And then they move to having a CRM, a back end donor management system. When they do that, because the data that they've been collecting is really just about donor behavior, who's giving, how much are they giving, when are they giving, then they move to their CRM system and they still continue to focus on donor behavior. Like what is the donor doing? And I am just fanatically interested in what is the relationship between 
fundraiser behavior and donor behavior. Because when we start to just look at our donor behavior and we start to say, oh, our donors like to give at end of year, for example, and we've disconnected that from the fact that we send all of our asks between November and December 31st, we make a lot of assumptions about donor behavior that takes out of the equation our actions and our behavior. And what you really help your teams do is track and manage and prioritize fundraiser behaviors that are the leading indicators that ultimately lead to the lagging indicator, which is how much the organization is raising. So can you talk about that from your frame of reference, then we can sort of get into some of those nitty gritty details? Sure. I did mention earlier, but currently I'm the director of fundraising intelligence analytics and reporting for University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And this is exactly what we're concentrating on right now. You're exactly right. There are so many institutions that are at sort of a maturity level where they are really trying to figure that out. We are concentrating, and in my experience, it's always that dollar amount. We always want to measure the dollars. And if you're lucky, you get to the donor behavior. And then from there, you can mature the situation into what are the actual drivers of the productivity. You know, your productivity is money in the door, and your drivers of the productivity are intrinsically linked. I think there's a direct correlation, like you said, if you never ask for the money until November, you're not going to get money until November, but that doesn't mean they wouldn't give otherwise. You're just asking. I've seen a lot of databases where the Fabulous 15 is always asked for whatever new project is going on, but no one ever asks the rest of the alumni or you know, the donor base there or the prospect base there, rather. If you never ask them, they never give. It's a thing. So I believe there is a direct correlation there between the behavior and the result. The question that I bring to the table is how does your work week as it goes directly affect that? Is it that you're actively planning, cold calling, making connections the first part of the week, and then the rest of the week, are you out in the field having the lunches, having the great conversations? And within the past three years, the question has really evolved into how much of that can be digital? And does that disrupt the normal way your week works? I mean, you know, <laughs> as you take a look at it from a macro perspective, all of those behaviors that a development officer does during the week adds up. So you can actually see donations in based on when they took vacation, <laughs> when they didn't, all of that kind of stuff. You get down into the actual data. It's really fascinating. So again, I believe there is a, a direct correlation there. And I think it, it is worthwhile to examine it so that you can refine it, particularly in mid-level giving, that leadership annual giving space. It's huge. I believe that's because there is a lot of cold calling there and there is a lot of re-engagement. And whether or not you're taking advantages in larger institutions in particular, you know, if you are already having engagement events, if you're already having cultivation events, how is that translating into your pipeline? Is it translating into your pipeline? And what are those things that you can better concentrate on to make certain that those convert into gifts? So is the way that you look at this data, I'm taking some notes while we talk just to make sure I can sort of track all these moving pieces, but it sounds like there's the data around like what are fundraisers doing? And there's both the more global data elements around like, are you having events for this versus are you making phone calls? So there's like the fundraiser development shop data. Then there's the how does that data relate to donor engagement data? So like, are they showing up to those events? Are they picking up the phone and talking to you? Are they filling out that survey? 
And then the donor behavior engagement metrics that you're tracking, those two things combined, or you know, one leads to the next, that ultimately then leads to the giving data, which is like, did the donor give? And so you're looking at the relationship between, are you looking at the relationship between the fundraiser behavior and the giving, or are you looking at the relationship between the fundraiser behavior and the engagement, and then the engagement and the giving? There's actually a third piece there. Okay. And that is Correct your, me. no, you're, you're totally fine. It is there. There's a third piece there. And that particularly in larger shops where you have the luxury of prospect development, that is your enhancement of that relationship. It is the understanding and honing of ask amounts. It is understanding of what the constituents actually capable of. And when you add that in, it becomes about both the engagement, the propensity to give altogether, and then how that translates into the interest, whatever it is you're trying to fund. So that happens between, I mean, maybe not even between, but as just an additional element that sort of sits on top of then the donor engagement or is looked at in combination with the donor engagement to help indicate what you're going to see on the giving side. Absolutely. There's three or four, and I won't mention names, but there's three or four services that we can use that take all of that and score it and put it into really great tools that we can use. But I, I can tell you those development officers who, in my history in prospect development, engaged with my shop, raised more money and raised more money in shorter periods of time. Because the education of the donor, both from a, let's face it, our donors are savvy. They understand what's going on. They see you coming. It's a thing. <laughs> so if you can get out of the script and if you can get out of that and understand where their true heart lies and where they want to enhance and impact, at the end of the day, that's really what it's about. We can talk about dollar goals all day long, but from a donor perspective, they want to see that they're helping somebody. So yeah. the conversation becomes, why are they engaged? How are they engaged? You know, I always believe there's two stories. There's their money story and then there's their heart story. You know, they can have all the money in the world, never give a dime away. Or they can be like so many philanthropists and pledge to give it all the way by the time they die. You know, it just depends on their own experiences. So you have to factor that in too, you know. So you take their engagement, you take their, their actual wealth and their propensity to give in general. And then you take that and you, you translate that into an actual ask and permission to ask, really. That's your side of it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's sort of like work our way backwards here. Knowing all the data that you have looked at, if you were going to tell maybe a smaller shop who could only look at a few, let's start with engagement metrics and then we'll look at fundraiser behavior metrics. If you were going to tell like a small mid-sized shop like to look at the top three engagement indicators, like donor behaviors that give a strong indication that they are going to give, not necessarily what amount or anything like that, what would you tell them to particularly focus on tracking and looking for? Well, first of all, I would say every institution is different and it depends on how, again, how they're being asked to engage. That's the first thing. Take a look at how you're asking your constituency to engage. From there, it is, are they correcting things when they go out incorrectly? If they take the time to say, my last name has two L's, not one, they're engaged. They want to, you know, and you can invite them to things all day long, show up all day long, but 
if they don't take that initiative to say, I care about engaging with this institution, it doesn't matter. They can just be there because their friends are there. <laughs> it's a thing. But if they care enough to correct, if they care enough to engage in, I know a lot of institutions have like class notes or society notes or, you know, things like that. That is also another indicator. And then, I mean, of course, at the end of the day, it's have they given small amounts? Have they given consistently? That sort of thing. So it's have they singled out people? Have they wanted to have conversations? Have they mentioned anywhere, even on a reply envelope? Hi, I'd love to meet, you know, whatever director uh, really enjoyed this event. If they write on something that comes back, that's huge too. It's the thought in the moment. It's not mindless. It's actually thoughtful. I love everything that you just shared, but I really love that you shared the correction piece. Because I think when we get those emails as fundraisers, like our stomach sinks that like we did something wrong and we're like, oh my God, this email is such a bad sign. And I think just hearing that actually that email is a really good sign is just such an important thing for fundraisers to hear. So I really appreciate you sharing that. Okay, so we have some, like here are the things to sort of watch for, right? Like, are they giving? Are they giving feedback? Are they wanting to meet with people? Sort of, are they, taking some of these engagement invitations, taking advantage of some of these engagement invitations. And then if you were going to think about the fundraiser behaviors to prioritize, like when we see fundraisers doing X, Y, and Z consistently, those engagement numbers balloon, what would some of those behaviors be? Well, those engagement factors roll into what's called affinity. Those are kind of the same thing, a little different. Engagement is literal engagement, where affinity is love for. So I think the, particularly in the, the early part of the relationship with your constituent, it's about being genuine. Anyone can sit in front of somebody else and, and read through a, a thought script, disregarding any, any response. Or you hear, our house just burned down. But, you know, you have to make an ask anyway. <laughs> it's not how it works. And I think that is a huge piece to that. You know, in your your qualification or discovery phase of the relationship, you have to let them talk, absorb it. And you know, and everybody else knows, if you haven't spoken to a constituent in a while, particularly if they've had previous engagement with the institution, you're going to have to sponge. You're going to have to understand their frustration, understand their position, and understand their own relationship with the institution. That gives you huge, huge things to work off of. And from there, it's about shutting up and letting them talk. And don't push things on them, but say, but when you hear, you know, I had a great time, we love to go, I don't know, whatever their primary interest is, you know, a hobby or what, whatever, put that in the back of your brain and say, okay, we have these interests that might be something they, they might like to, to engage in. And the thing is, they're likely engaged in that somewhere else, just particularly in your, your major giving space. People are active. <laughs> People have hard things that they do, you know, even if it's go kayaking every Saturday. If you have a water conservation interest, hi, <laughs> match. <laughs> you know? So it's looking for those indicators. It's also... You know, I could tell you many, many, many stories about wealth indicators in the field. Just because someone looks flashy doesn't mean they're rich. And that's huge. But it's also about asking to ask. It's about understanding from them in the conversation what it is they're willing to do, what it is they 
want to change and really creating sort of a, a strategy around that. I think that's huge. I, I really do. And that's just from watching over 150 development officers do this over 20 years. Some of the, the best gifts that we have gotten over my career have been those development officers who literally listened, asked the correct questions, follow-up questions, follow-ups and follow-throughs, always the thing, right? And then coming back to me and going, hey, they said this, this, and this. Can you dig a little? And so I do, I bring it back to them and we internally start having this conversation of wealth indicators and true affinity and interests. How are they engaged elsewhere? What else are they giving to? What are the things that make their heart sing and pull on those strings? And just because they've always given to something doesn't mean they're not interested in what you're doing. That's a huge thing too. Yeah. It sounds like even not more than the touch points, but like, I feel like when I was taught to fundraise, it was like, keep meeting with people over and over and over again and talk about things that they care about and build a relationship with them. But there wasn't a recommendation, honestly, to be like transparent about what they cared about or what they might want to do together. And so I was sort of out there like, okay, like, I'm making friends. And there was just this uncertainty that I always felt around like this sort of like underlying incentive that I had to be building that relationship, which didn't feel great, that I wasn't supposed to talk about. And I wasn't sure when I was supposed to talk about it. And but what I hear you really saying is like, a big part of this is like having those touch points, but being honest from the beginning, not making an ask from the beginning, but being honest yes, from the beginning don't. around the purpose of engagement. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Right. Because they can see you coming 50 miles away. They know exactly what you do and exactly where you are. You know, one of the best things I've ever heard a development officer say is I'm there to facilitate what they want. And at the end of the day, that's my job. I'm not here to push anything. I'm not here to sell anything. I'm here to make their dreams come true. And that floored me. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> but that's it. And if you're outright and honest and transparent about the whole thing, hi, I'm here. I understand you were once engaged with this. How can we get you back engaged? How can we help facilitate what it is that you want to do? And there's 50,000 schools of thought on that. But that's what it's all about. I could do analytics all day long and never get to that and never really set you up for that. But if you can do that, then half of the quote unquote game is over. You don't have to rely on those mind scripts and you don't have to worry about what do I say before the drinks come? You know, it becomes a real relationship and a real conversation at that point, as long as you listen. Yeah. One of my fundraising coaches would always say, like, make the ask over soup. Like, you're not sitting there the whole meal wondering, like, when is it going to lead to this thing? You know, it's like everybody's gone there. 
with the same expectation, like get it out of the way, enjoy being together, you know. Not and a so, surprise, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. It should never be a surprise. You know, I'm curious, what are some of the fundraiser indicators? Like if you went into a new shop and their retention numbers were incredibly low, what would be the first pieces of fundraiser behavior that you would look at to see, like, are these happening here? In the case of retention, I would look at acknowledgement and stewardship. Are you saying thank you enough? And I don't mean in tchotchkes and that kind of stuff. I just mean, what is that behavior? Are your development officers getting to the ask and ghosting them, you know, moving on to the next so that there is some corruption in the relationship movement at that end. They're not coming back. And why aren't they coming back? Is it that, and I, I've personally seen this where portfolios are not allowed to refresh. So you get new constituents instead of refreshing your old constituents once they've given. So they get through that stewardship cultivation, and then they never get to the next interest or a deepening of the current interest. So that that's huge. That's probably the second thing I would look at, even at a mid-level giving level, that it happens there more than actually happens in major giving, in my opinion. Because you do have 237,000 records you got to get through. It's a real thing. You have one or two people, somebody's going to get left behind you know, eventually. But there again, it comes back to that engagement interest. And if they're reaching out to you again, pick them up again. It's a thing. They still want to give. And then from there, I could get into the weeds of all kinds of models and analytics on retention, but I won't bore you with that. <laughs> but, but there's well, a, will there's a you lot more. Break there. down what you mean when you say stewardship, because that's another word that I think in those smaller organizations, you know, I was told like cultivate, steward. And I'm like, what does that mean? And it felt very nebulous. So, like, what are some of the core elements and behaviors associated with stewardship? Sure. And I'll throw a shout out to our, our beloved guru of donor relations, Lynn Wester, you know, she's always talking about acknowledgement and strategically thanking. And how do you go about doing that, you know, and creating a culture where that begets the next ask, you get permission by saying thank you enough. And I don't mean writing a, a thank you note every Thursday, I mean, engaging these people and continuing talking to them like you haven't gotten the gift yet. And I don't mean literally, but I mean, in any relationship, you have to keep the relationship going at some point. Otherwise, you just become, even in personal relationships, you just become fractured and you don't talk to each other. You don't have anything in common, so you don't talk to each other anymore. And of course, it's always about maintaining that emotion. So if you're really stewarding people, you are making certain that they are receiving the intent of what their gift is meant for is truly applied and the impact of that is communicated back in some way and making certain that they remain engaged because of that. I can't tell you how many donors I've encountered myself that are just like, yeah, I'll never do that again because it was awful, awful, awful process. And you have to sort of clear the way for that. Once they've signed a, an agreement, it's not the end of it, I guess is what I'm trying to say you know, the back of the house or the, the one person doing it all has to make certain that the funds are invested properly, that the scholarships are awarded, all of these things that, and it's not just scholarships, but the intent of the money given is completed. And, and I think that's huge. What does it look like between gifts in terms of stewardship? So let's say that they have their thank you process on lock, but then all of a sudden it's October 
and they realize they haven't talked to them since March. Like, what are the things that should have been happening in there? Because then I hear that sort of sinking feeling fundraiser. It's like, oh, I don't want to just like go back to them for more money. But it's like, well, the reason it feels that way is because your last conversation was about the money they gave. <laughs> right. Exactly. And not about their interest, which is a whole other thing. <laughs> and it's kind of like that embarrassing date where neither one of you ever called each other back. <laughs> That sort of thing. It, that's a reality. The thing I would say is that if you have one, you should be fundraising all year round, not just at the end of the year and not just at the end of the fiscal year, whatever that is. And particularly, I'll start with major giving. They should be invited to relevant events. If they're like in higher education's example, if they're funding a scholarship or a, a chair, let's say, you know, they're endowing a chair for the lead of a department. They need to meet these people. They need to be engaged, not in a demanding way that's completely different, but they need to be involved in recognition and acknowledgement of the impact of their gift. Usually you'll have like a mixer or a dinner with scholarship recipients, letters come back, that sort of thing. There's a million ways you could do it, frankly. They need to be engaged all year round. And for the five years or three years or whatever their pledge is, they shouldn't be forgotten. They should receive calls from the head of the division or the, the president if it's appropriate or in smaller nonprofits. If you're having a walk that has nothing to do with what they gave to, they should still be invited. You have to carve out experiences for them to remain engaged because it's usually, if it's a major transformational gift, there's going to be a five-year process of playing, paying pledges and making certain all of that process happens is also huge making certain that they get their reminders and in a thoughtful way, not just, hey, here's an email. Did you get it? We need our money yesterday. Thanks. Sometimes that one thing and how that's handled can determine whether or not you get a million dollar gift. I personally know of some philanthropists who will give what they call process gifts. So they give $5,000 or $10,000 to an institution, be it nonprofit or higher education, healthcare even, and just to see how they're treated. It's amazing what happens. <laughs> you know, so many times once the money's in the door, they're forgotten. And I think that's a huge step toward renewing an interest. And if it's even possible within your database, there should be like ways that you can trigger a notification that says, hey, this is the last pledge payment, or this is the next to last, or whatever it is. And that's the key indicator to go, hey, I need to warm them back up again. Yes, we've kept them warm, but we really need to start conversation again. I know this is your last pledge payment. What do you want to do next? And a lot of times, if you engage them well during that pledge payment, they'll do a second or a third gift just within that period of time. I'm rambling. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I think it's all really helpful. And one of the things that I think is so hard about conversations like this is the reminder that is true and important for us. We talk about, which is that like the stakes are high in terms of like how we build these relationships and how we prioritize our touch points. And then also knowing the very real experience of being the sole fundraiser for an organization while I was also responsible for all of the programs and all of the staff and all of the volunteering and everything like that and how to sort of like prioritize my behaviors and my task lists. And we have that constant reminder, fire, motivation, fear, whatever it is around the money in the door. 
And so it's easier to sort of incentivize ourselves to take those actions because we're constantly looking at whether it's our bank statement or some graph somewhere. And then we just don't have that same incentive structure or urgency feelings around the stewardship pieces or the retention pieces because we're like, right. oh, okay, you know, I got it. Like I can breathe I've for a second part. and then- <laughs> Yeah. And just knowing that that's such a normal part of like human psychology and behavior and motivation and all those things. And one of the things I've been thinking about recently, and so I'm sure this isn't going to be like a totally coherent question, because I'm still very much like processing it in my own head, which is like, I feel like there are a lot of conversations out there around like, how many touch points do you need to have with each donor every year? How many touch points between asks? How many emails should you be sending out every week to donors? How many phone calls should you be making every week? And what feels hard about it, I was just having a conversation with a tech platform recently, and they were saying they're building in some functionality to help folks manage their the amount of emails they were sending out daily. And then they were like, well, one of the challenges that we're running into is that when people don't do that, like when they don't send out that number of emails, they feel really defeated around it. But like every day is different. And maybe that day they were out in the field and they shouldn't have been sending emails. They were doing this other behavior, this other activity that's really important. And it had me thinking, this is a very long way of sort of explaining, I don't know, nebulous question, which is like, when we have an app like Duolingo, we're trying to learn a new language and Duolingo has all these ways that it's celebrating our interactivity with the platform and we get prizes when we do a certain lesson for the day. But if I didn't have a great Duolingo day, it doesn't mean I'm like, oh my God, I had the worst day. It's like, no, I had a day where I did all these other things that I cared about and were important. And I don't base everything around that one behavior. How do you think about that when you think about fundraising, like helping fundraisers sort of balance the diversities of the diversity of behavior and actions that are important? And how do we help them feel a sense of accomplishment around task lists that are never ending, where there could always be more? What are some things that you've seen that have worked well as we think about the integration of fundraiser behavior tracking with the overall sort of encouragement and mental health of fundraisers doing this? I believe that is huge without question. And there's something that I've learned over 20 years that is relevant to your question there. What happens in your technology, your database, your measurement of metrics needs to reflect what's happening in the field. And there is a symbiotic relationship between sort of your CRM and the behavior in the field. And depending on, frankly, what you've chosen, that can be disparate or it can be very, very paralleled. So I question putting a target number on any behavior because of exactly what your question is. You know, whatever you, behavior you measure is the behavior you will receive. That is huge when you're talking about quantifying behavior. If you measure it, people will do exactly that. So if I need to send 45 emails in a day, that's all I'm going to concentrate on because I want to do good. That's human behavior. The answer to your question, I believe, is truly diversifying and identifying, frankly, there is significant thought that needs to be happening in the beginning of your creation of metrics and what you're quantifying. I've seen really great examples where some standards were thrown out completely and it improved behavior. So the, the question I always ask is, what behavior do you need right now to get you to where you want to go? Is it that we need to 
concentrate on qualification? Do we need new constituents, donors in? Do we need to go back and better steward so that we have higher retention rates? What is it that you're trying to do? And once you can get there, you can incentivize based on that. So I've seen a lot of fun things where there is transparent data on even as simple as how many actions did you do this week? That sort of thing. And there's a a competition amongst units for that. And they'll get like a $5 silly Starbucks card or something at the end of the, the measurement time. You can do all sorts of things, but it comes back to that basic idea. You know, I don't believe you should quantify, hey, I need you to do 17 things today that are just this. And then because that might not happen, you could have a donor call extremely upset and it derails your entire day. (laughs) It's a thing. So I would say, look at an aggregate of information that will allow for that flexibility because at the end of the day, development officers are the original remote worker, right? You handle 17 different tasks or more, sometimes 50 if you got a big event happening in a day. You get to be the PR person, the financier, and the event planner all at the same time. You know, This is why you get the big bucks. It's a thing. <laughs> um, so there is an entire science behind it. I'm really, really just skimming the surface of it here. But you have to build in that flexibility. And by looking at the drivers of productivity, not just that dollar amount, and really defining what behavior you want to see. And in a lot of cases, when you're doing that, you're going into sort of either going into a campaign or you're coming out of a campaign, even at the small nonprofit level. So there are schools of thought on what behaviors drive larger gifts. It depends on your maturity of your your organization as well, truly. For example, if we know that we have, let's say, 13,000 people capable of of a major gift, and we know that, but we have a campaign where we're going to try to raise a billion dollars, do we need to be concentrating on making 15 solicitations? Or do we need to be concentrating on what are the qualifiers of wealth that get us to that? How are we qualifying people to get get them into the pipeline? How are we concentrating our mid-level to get them into a major gift pipeline with the understanding this is going to take more than... 13,000 people to, <laughs> I say people, but constituents to actually get a billion dollars, you know, what are the overall strategies? And that then translates down. Are you cold calling half of your week? Are you concentrating on event and not doing anything, <laughs> you know, in terms of, of actual relationship building there? Are you spending your time folding envelopes? What are you doing? What is it that, what is needed for the moment? And I think that solves the question. And again, I mean, it depends on, on the maturity of your institution. It depends on the number, frankly, of hands and helpers you have. It depends on so many factors. <laughs> but I think it is right and proper to incentivize. I think transparency just automatically does that. And, you know, if somebody's looking, you're going to act completely different than if somebody's not. It's a thing. <laughs> so it's a matter of what you, you make visual. It's a matter of what it is your talk is in supervision situations. If you sat down with your supervisor and they only want to hear about what color the napkins are at the next event, are you fundraising? Are you going to concentrate there? Wow. I could talk about all of this forever. (laughs) Forever. And I know, I know we're at the, we're only on like the tip of the iceberg, but I so appreciate just all the different ways you broke this down and thinking about some of those very specific behaviors across both fundraisers, donors, for engagement, for retention. I think it's so helpful to think about that. And then I love what you said at the end. I just want to double click on that, that like the behaviors that every shop chooses 
have to be related to what is actually happening, what's working for them, how does their fundraising shop operate, and their capacity. Like, I think we get this blanket advice, like, this is how many touch points you need, and da da da. And it's like, all of those things need to be able to ebb and flow based on the reality of what is happening inside your organization. So I just love that we ended with that. I think it's so great. Thank you so much for your time today, for all of your wisdom, um, sharing it with all of us. I'm so grateful. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mallory. Yeah, thank you. Wow, you guys, there is so much inside this episode that I'm walking away with, but here are a few of the things that I'm double-clicking on right now. Number one, understanding the relationship between fundraiser and donor behavior is like understanding the two sides of a coin. The correlation and connection is at the heart of composing, engaging, and effective fundraising strategies because the ripple effect of a fundraiser's actions can greatly influence the donor's behavior. Number two, Knowing the indicators of engagement and interest outside of just the money moving into your organization can be incredibly helpful. The key here lies in looking beyond past giving data and gaining a holistic view of the donor's engagement and interests. Number three, Retention and stewardship are anchors that hold the ship of fundraising in place. They enable the nurturing of long-term relationships with donors through the right balance of appreciation, recognition, and consistency. Number four, in the journey of a fundraiser, diverse behavior can be key to discovering what works best in different circumstances. Jessica emphasizes avoiding traditional one-size-fits-all approaches, making clear the importance of adapting to the unique needs and capacities of each individual organization. And lastly, in the fundraising world, genuine engagement carries a significant weight. Not only does it help to foster a relationship with donors, but it's also the best way to understand their passions, interests, and capacities. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Jessica and our amazing sponsors, Bloomerang, Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.